This is That Marketing Podcast. Made by marketers for marketers. Welcome to another edition of That Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Spotler UK. Today, the podcast welcomes the man of many lanyards, Anthony Taz Tazgar, to talk about the power and importance of storytelling. We cover the very traditional origins of telling stories and balance that with the skill of pulling inspiration from non-traditional sources, everything from Led Zeppelin to Umbrella Academy. Taz's big call to action for everyone listening is the use of a so-called golden thread to tie your communications together, to engage your audience and to keep everything coherent, consistent and retaining its power. If you want to hear more of Taz's thoughts on storytelling and where great ideas come from, he's the author of three books, Incitations, The Inspiratorium, and The Storytelling Book. I read all three of them myself in preparation for the podcast, and they are all well worth your time. You can find them in all good bookshops. I hope you enjoy, and happy marketing. Well, Taz, thank you, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast, first of all. Pleasure. Good to be here. Okay, so in your in your description that uh, kind of goes around with you most of the time, you describe yourself as as a man of many lanyards. And I wanted to wanted to dive into that before we talk about lots of storytelling. Where does where does that little epithet come from? Yeah, I um I've, I've got a sort of fairly eclectic background. So I started off as an ad agency account planner roughly during the Napoleonic War, um, and did that for a while, um, working with advertising agencies, clients, creative people, uh, working in terms of market research and insight and all that sort of stuff. And I still have one foot in that world. But then I sort of left to go freelance. And since then, I spend a lot of my time doing training, a fair amount of my time doing consultancy. I do lecturing, written books. Uh, I do the odd bit of writing outside of, of work as well. So I describe myself as being quite diverse, but I have collected over the years many, many lanyards uh, in my study, which we can't see at the moment. Um, so I, I thought that was quite a, a reasonable metaphor for saying that I sort of, you know, work across different domains that might be pinned down into one, really. Sure. I mean, there's, there's a sort of sort of golden thread across all the stuff that you, you do, which is kind of getting people to embrace storytelling much more, which is what I got you on. Yes. Um, to talk about. Do you think there was a moment where we ditched storytelling or was it a kind of gradual process and we've only just realised what we've lost uh, in the fight to get it back? Um, I think it's something that's always been there. By the way, bonus points for actually using Golden Thread because I'm sure. Thank you very much. I think the thing that, I mean, again, this partly goes back to my origin story. Before I went into advertising, um, I was a classicist. I did Latin, Greek and ancient history. And anyone who knows me or reads my books knows I'm still pretty much obsessed with the Greek myths and with language and etymology. So I spent many of my earlier formative years looking at myths, looking at language, looking at history, and then ended up working in advertising agencies for reasons which are too complicated, daft to explain. But I was quite baffled because... I thought working in advertising and certainly working with clients, working with um, creatives, the, the, the sort of whole genre, whole culture of storytelling would be quite prominent. And I was quite dismayed, really, because what I found was that, yes, creative people would create ads that were stories, that were myths. But the rest of us, including clients, were sort of slaves to this terribly dull, worthy, bullet point sort of way of communicating. And pretty much early on, I thought, well, what's what's gone on here? When did we lose the art of communicating through stories? Because, you know, in my books and writings and stuff, I talk about that. We are we are designed to share and take in information through storytelling. So 
to answer your question, I, I think there was a sort of golden age for us all to share stories. I think what happened was once sort of business came around, once we started talking in a very professional way, once we started listening to jargon and management consultants, I think storytelling waned. So it's been my own little personal quest, to use another storytelling term, um, to try and restore storytelling to sort of business and marketing and sales, really. A key part of your approach to storytelling is the so-called golden thread. It's, it's an idea that is sort of central to your, your views and your way of teaching people mm. about storytelling. Can you, can you dive into it a bit more and tell us how it, how it works? Yeah, I mean, uh, it sort of comes from a number of different sort of themes from my life. So it started off, again, from my um, obsession with Greek mythology. So the Golden Thread originally comes from uh, the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. So King Minos of Crete had defeated the Athenians in battle. And as tribute, he said, you'll send, you'll send me seven young men and seven young women every year to Crete. And there they will be taken into the centre of the labyrinth, a fiendish maze devised by Daedalus, father of Icarus. And at the centre of the labyrinth is my son, the Minotaur, half man, half bull, and he will tear them all limb from limb. And this happened for many years until there rose a hero, as I have to say, called Theseus in Athens, who said, enough of this. I will, I will not allow any more young Athenian men and women to be slaughtered. I will go over and I will slay the Minotaur. So he goes to Crete, meets King My Minos, announces that he's going to kill the Minotaur. But when he's there, he also is introduced to King Minos's daughter Ariadne. And as these things happen, Ariadne falls in love with Theseus and Theseus with Ariadne. And she says to him, Theseus, you know, no one has ever managed to find their way into the, the labyrinth. And even if they did, they would never be able to slay the Minotaur. And even if they did, they would never find their way out safely. So she gives him a ball of thread and some of the authors authorities say golden ball of thread and says look take this at the end at the beginning of the labyrinth at the outside and start unraveling it as you get into the center so that when you've got to the center and you've hopefully slain the minotaur you'll be able to trace your way back and i always loved that story and then as i got into sort of training and speaking and writing i thought this sort of works really because the biggest problem that i see with communications with presentations with my students presentations or documents is it sort of all over the place? There's lots of charts, lots of numbers. Somebody once said about history, history is one damn fact after another. And often our, our communications are one damn chart, one damn bullet point after another. So I always emphasize that you need to create what I call the golden thread, something that is tangible, that is logical, is an argument, a hypothesis, a point of view. And you stick with that rigidly, you make it very clear. You're allowed the odd digression, but as long as the brain again can hold on to that thread, there's a much better chance that people will understand what you're trying to say and take it all in. It can be a story, it can be a presentation, but you need some sort of thread because otherwise the brain loses, literally loses the thread. So I talk about that quite a lot and I think it has applications in all sorts of areas. But yeah, it's something that's quite close to my, uh, quite close to my heart, the golden thread. The statistic gets thrown a lot around, but my, I wonder if it's got anything to do with this, is that the um, human attention span is sort of waning dramatically towards sort of goldfish level and even below. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I have read stories that that's not, <clears throat> not, not really the case, but do you think people have heard that and gone, oh, we need, we need bullet points, we can't, can't set up a narrative now, we've just got to hit them with a, a, a sort of single punch of information. It's a, it's a fascinating topic, and I've seen that, that study. It was done by Yahoo in Canada, and they proudly proclaimed, according to their research, that officially human attention span was now lower than that of a goldfish which i think you know if darwin was still, darwin was still alive you'd feel quite disappointed about that really but i think i think there's two ways of looking at this and again i've, I've sort of written about this because you've got broadly speaking you've got two ends of a spectrum here you've got people who say right attention span has gone down to like three or four seconds everything on youtube everything on instagram everything has to be three or four seconds otherwise people won't pay attention 
and that tends to create a certain type of communication you know which is loud which is shocking which is startling which is occasionally gratuitously annoying but at the other end of the spectrum if you look at i don't know netflix if you look at a lot of books I think the latest um, J.K. Rowling Cormorant Strike book, I think, is about five or six hundred pages. There is an argument to say that actually the other end of that spectrum is also quite busy. There are people binging, you know, on on box sets on Netflix. People are buying and reading five or six, seven hundred page books. I've just read David Mitchell's book, Utopia Avenue, I'm a big sort of uh, reading fan. And again, that's sort of five or six, seven hundred pages. But I think it's about, you know, the content. And if the content is interesting and worthwhile and memorable and emotional and all those sorts of words, people will actually be involved with it. So I don't buy into this fact that attention span has got so short that everything can only be consumed in like two or three second bites. I was thinking as soon as you mentioned Netflix, I was thinking there's something like Umbrella Academy. I've just finished watching. That's what, 10 episodes yeah. in the latest series, an hour long each. If you said yeah. to me, do you want to watch a 10 hour long movie? I'd say absolutely not, but I'll happily sit and watch three or four of those in a row. I wonder yeah, if and... the ability to consume it in bites, like we should, there needs to be a, like, like a middle ground where you can say you can consume it in the, in the size chunks you want and then understand that data and see what your audience actually wants to do. Yeah, but I think that's that's the beauty of it. Again, you know, because I worked in ad agencies, um, I spent a lot of time you know, working with media people and I still do. And I think media has always been slightly the sort of, you know, not the black sheep, but the slightly taciturn cousin sitting in the back of the room. But actually how, you know, how we consume what we consume is incredibly important. And I, I think it should be sort of segmented. Um, actually, you know, I, I might give you a bit of language that I quite like from behavioral economics, because um, I was saying to you before we came on the air that um, I'm doing a series of, of training webinars for a client in Australia at the moment that I've worked with for two or three years, bless them. But it means me doing that at seven o'clock every morning, UK time. So if anyone, if I don't know if you've got a sound effect that you know evokes pity, but you can. <laughs> I'm sure we can find someone one somewhere. We can play we can. that now. Um, and it was about, I was doing a session on behavioral economics. And uh, one of the, the, the aspects I'm fascinated by, which goes back to the paradox of choice, Barry Schwartz in his book, The Paradox of Choice, talks about this sort of spectrum of people he calls maximizers at one end and satisficers at the other end. So a maximizer is somebody who wants the best of everything and must make the most perfect decision. Otherwise, they get annoyed and frustrated. And my wife's quite like that when it comes to buying things and booking holidays. I hope she's not listening. The other, the other end of the spectrum is a word that he, he uses. He calls, it, he calls them satisficers, which is a sort of portmanteau term for satisfactory and sufficient. And these people only want to make a decision that's good enough. They don't want to make the best possible decision. They want to spend their time doing other things, but want to make a decision that's, you know, 60, 70 percent. So I think that's the same with media consumption. I think people who are, who are maximizers, if you like, want to consume everything immediately and want to have it all in one go. But they're also satisficers who, you know, love Umbrella Academy or for me, it was Watchmen or you know, Game of Thrones or whatever. And I think people will consume things according to whether, if you like, they're maximizers or satisficers. But I, I don't think that that insight has really been sufficiently paid attention to. I think there is a variety of ways in which people can consume. And as I said, going back to the previous question, it's certainly not true that everyone just wants everything in, you know, tiny little bite-sized chunks. So, I mean, is there an argument for then... I've heard both sides of this particular one, so I'm intrigued to see what you think about um, that. You could have you could have the one approach of you take you take you take your one bit of content, you take your your idea of storytelling, and you produce that in a series of emails, in a podcast, in a transcript, in a resource. You sort of give put it in all these different facets mm. so people can consume it as they want. 
but you're kind of, the other side of that is sort of the risk of content fatigue that you're putting up so much that it just exhausts people and trying to promote it and get it all attention is actually taking taking away from its effectiveness yeah I, th I think I seem to be be in a bit of a both and mode today <laughs> I think there's I think there's truth in both and it, it does go back to my maximizer satisfies the thing what I would say and again it's it's based on my experience as an ad agency planner over decades is I think there's there is a tendency sometimes to blitz people with content let me give you a bit of language that I like using which is there's a sort of opposition or polarity that I like talking about which is which is messaging versus massaging and if you just buy if you just give me a little moment or two to explain that makes a great t-shirt slogan by the way if anyone's interested um, <laughs> so messaging for me is when a client is telling people stuff right and it's a bit like if you're going on a date and you say this is me I'm brilliant I've done all these wonderful things I've written books I'm incredibly handsome blah, blah. and it's showing off and it's messaging and I don't generally like the word messaging. I remember working with a client many years ago when I was freelancing at Ogilvy, and they used the term messaging architecture. Now, if you or any of your listeners use the term messaging architecture, let me just apologize now. <laughs> I'm not a big fan because that's not how the brain works. The brain, uh, messaging architecture is, you know, it's, it's a software term, I think. And that's not how our brains work. So I think the idea that you just message people into submission in any sense, as I say, whether it's, you know, communication, emails, advertising, or going on a date, um, I think is, you know, a faulty way of communicating. I prefer to use the word massaging. When you're talking to people, you're trying to massage their sense of self. You're trying to make them feel good about who they are or what they buy or why they make decisions. And again, if anyone is looking to go on a date, I think that also that works in that sense as well. So for me, one of the ways I answer that is to say, if all you do is message people relentlessly with content, which is bang, 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 fact, 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 message, message, message. However good that is, I suspect it's it's going to you know fail the test. If, however, you're using a more a, a approach which is more about massaging, which is about entertaining people, rewarding them, making them solve puzzles, that that sort of approach, then I think you can probably produce more content, and there's a better chance that people will actually engage with that content. That feels like another both and answer. <laughs> yeah, well, that's all right. It's, you know, it's, just, it's, in, uh, it's balanced. That's, that's what we want. We want a, a nice rounded so. view there's of one other, There's one other thing as well, which I, I, I'll, I'll throw in as well, um, which again, people who know my training or read the books will know this. Because a lot of what I, I say isn't based just on subjectivity, it's based on behavioral economics and in, in, in one area, area in particular, sort of neuroscience. What we know about the brain is that by and large, the brain is not just a, a sponge. It doesn't absorb everything and keep everything. It's a very misleading metaphor. It's also not a computer. It doesn't work in the same way as computers. For example, computers don't have bodies. So um, I have an expression which I've, I've sort of come to fall upon over the years, um, which is by serendipity. I'm a big fan of serendipity. The first book was about storytelling, helpfully called the storytelling book. The second book is called The Inspiratorium, and it's about insight and inspiration. And I talk an awful lot about insight being about serendipity, about making serendipitous connections which create new ideas. And that's how lots of insights happen. So this is a, a thing that I fell upon a while ago um, when I was just typing um, uh, an article about something. And because if you look at your keyboard, the letters N and M are next to each other. I'd actually tried to write attention span, but I ended up typing attention spam with an M. And I thought, oh, hello, that works quite well. That's quite a nice way of describing how the brain works. So what I've now fallen upon saying quite a lot in my talks and, and stuff is to say, is what you're saying going to get through attention spam? So the analogy is like your, you know, your email. 
we like to think that I'm sending stuff now from my in, 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 inbox into your inbox, you know, from my head to your head. But I'm arguing that because the brain filters out most of the stuff that it gets, the majority of, of, of things that I'm sending you or saying to you or communicating with you don't go into your attention inbox, they go into your attention spam. So that's part of my sort of overall theory of this. How do you get through attention spam? So again, if it's a story, if it's emotional, if it's massaging rather than messaging, I would argue there's a better chance that what you say will get through. In that case, if you're comparing it to, uh, to a spam filter, you could sort of talk about sort of rules mm. and expectations, and presumably the brain has some as well. I think that's why there's, I can't remember what kind of joke it is, but there's a, a thing in comedy that breaking expectations is what gets the laugh or what makes a joke funny. Um, ah. Benign violation so, theory you've just elaborated, uh, do you know? Yeah, that? that's, that's I, I definitely knew that word, yeah. I knew, yeah, I knew that. I was, you you know, yeah. I was gonna say, how does that work? We couldn't, should, should, does presenting someone with an unexpected, with something unexpected in, in B2B comms seem to work? It shouldn't, sorry, that it should work for well, whatever the type yeah. of content is. Yes, um, I'm sure you'll cut that second or two out, Richard, but yeah. I was just gonna talk, I'll, I'll come back to humour and insight as well, because it's, I've just done a talk for SMR, uh, the European Society of Market Research Companies, all about humour and insight because they're two of my favourite topics. But you're right, I think in B2B, as in B2C, and in case anyone asks me, in case you ask me, I, I think there are far fewer differences in B2B to B2C than people like to admit sometimes. Um, I was going to go down that route potentially, depending I on your answer. Yes, it's all person to person, is the. Is the uh, it's person to person, yeah. human to human, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Yes, the, the decision making process, the decision making unit can be different, but the B2B process, I, I think, is, is as emotional. And in fact, it's sometimes possibly more emotional than B2C. So you're right. I mean, what you've just elaborated again is um, whatever you want to call it. I'll, I'll use one of the big six emotions. And I'll just use the word surprise. For me, one of the key ways, again, of getting through attention spam, of avoiding just messaging, is to use the power of surprise. Surprise is there for an enormously important evolutionary reason. So all the emotions are there to make sure that we survive and thrive, that we pass our genes on to the next generation in good Darwinian fashion. And they all have different roles. But surprise is there to say, OK, all the stuff that's happening around you, all the senses, information you're getting through your senses, etc., here is something that is worthy of you paying attention because it may affect your chances of survival or thriving. So that is why surprise is so important. And I'm always amazed how little surprise is used. More in B2C communication, I think probably it's fair to say, but even then not that much because the violation of expectation is something that is absolutely core to getting attention, attracting emotion, and certainly for something I'm interested in, in creating insight. And again, we can talk about it in a minute because as you said, that whole thing about benign violation theory is how jokes work, it's how humour works. So again, we can talk about that in a minute as well, if you want. Absolutely, yeah, I think we should have been, it's a big turn. I think, one of those, I think it's interesting that it's one of those things that people probably, they probably instinctively understand, but they couldn't speak it and write it out. And if, it's, if they're gonna use that to impact in their, and their marketing, their messaging, it's worth having them being able to refer to it, like to understand what it is they what it is they implicitly know. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I've I've written I've written the odd bit of comedy myself, and I've always been fascinated the, about the role of humour and and why humour is so in, important and integral to human beings, and yet we know so little about how it works. So I mentioned I did this talk last week, so it's it's 
fortuitous you've asked me about Cuba because there are several theories and you mentioned one of them which is benign violation theory or incongruity theory that you have a setup a second line and then something that comes in and completely shakes what you've seen so two fish in a tank one says to the other how do you drive this thing <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um love it i could i could go on Interestingly, in, my, in, the, in the new book, Incitations, which is the third one, I refer to, I think it's called E.B. White, an American humorist, who says, um, analysing humour is like dissecting a frog. Not many people are interested and the frog dies. So you have to be very careful analysing humour. But, but what I find interesting about humour and surprise and insight is they are all about subverting your expectations. They're all about making you see things differently. And for me, in terms of as an ad agency planner and strategist and behavioral economist, I'm, I'm fascinated by how surprise and reframing can make you see the same thing in different ways. So for me, that whole notion of, and again, I've also, I also talk about um, films. I'm a huge film buff. So there was a section in the talk about the films of M. Night Shyamalan, who some of you may know directed, for example, The Sixth Sense. He was dead with Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment. And his early films tended to end with a, oh my, oh, oh my, you suddenly see everything differently. So again, for me, there's something very similar there in terms of humor and movies and insight and also expectations and cutting through and standing out as a piece of communication. So I think some of the best communication plays in that sort of area. It, it sort of gives you or takes you on a story, but then it subverts that and twists that. And that's how your brain gets involved and engaged. So I'm, I'm really interested in how we can make communication use some of those techniques. Now, a quote I've, I picked up from one of our speakers at uh, GatorCon back in 2018. But I, mm. I want to say it was Jimmy Page. Um, there are no original ideas left. Um, and this idea that it's perfectly acceptable to, or it's even a smart tactic to kind of look at what your competitors are doing and to be led by that. I wonder how you can kind of divide that up between, you know, a little bit of a little bit of safety and a little bit of risk, or should you go whole hog for a risky strategy because when it pays off, it will pay off in a big way. Um, you mentioned the word risk, which I have a I have a very long and and troubled relationship with the word risk. Um, because I, 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 I think I probably need to have therapy, actually, for the word risk. Because I remember when I was an ad agency planner working at an agency called EuroRSCG um, back in the well, whatever. Um, I was working with a man called Mark Winnick, and I was working on as a planner on Peugeot, and he was the creative director. And we have to always have these conversations about risk, because you cannot say risk to people, especially to clients, because risk is one of those words that is loaded, and it's very negative. Equally, you don't really want to say, right, here's something that's safe because no one is going to buy something if you just say it's safe. So I remember we used to word, use the word brave or bravery because at least that that's, has a slightly better massaging, if you like, influence. So I think you're right. If, there, if there's a spectrum which is risk at one end and safety at the other, I, I, I think the issue with safety is if you are going to be safe and, and be conventional, don't bother. You know, stay in bed. I mean, I do this little, um, I wouldn't even call it an exercise, but I do this thing when I'm doing training. I did it this morning, so it's fresh in my head. And if I say to you or any of your listeners, you know, describe to me a typical car ad, okay? So what would you see in a typical car ad, Richard? So you'd see, you see the car, it's probably, it's racing along somewhere. It's always going fast. It's always yeah. What's taking the road? corners a bit, bit harder. Main road, main road, sort of quiet, curvy, one you'd usually want curvy. to be a bit careful on, right. but you're probably, you're probably yeah. in the corners like a Formula One driver. 
Yeah, you know, and often yeah. it's shot from above. It's like a Tuscan hillside. Yeah, something like that. If there's a driver, it's probably going to be a man. If there's a woman, she's either a passenger or just strangely at the side of the road looking elegant. Now, <laughs> I do this all over the world and I do it, you know, we can do it with mobile phone ads, which for some reason tend to have balloons in them. This is the trouble is that what often happens in our communications, we, 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 we are so enthralled to what is relevant to our brand or our market. So it's the car, we must show the car looking lovely. We show the car cornering. We must show people eating yogurt and putting a spoon in and putting that spoon into their mouth. What happens is you become so enslaved to the conventions and assumptions of your particular market, B2B, B2C, whatever it is, is you end up doing exactly the same as everyone else who has the same service or the same benefit. And for me, that's one of the biggest traps that clients fall into and sometimes their agencies. So for me, if you're going to do that and spend however your budget, whatever your budget is and whatever your media is, I would simply say, don't even bother because I can tell you what will happen, which is that people will either ignore it or they'll get the brand wrong or it will go into attention span. So you have to have a component which is surprising, which is unexpected and which does flout those conventions in some way. Now, clearly you can go all the other end of that spectrum and just put, you know, a talking frog in your ad but then that loses completely on relevance. But the fact is that the biggest sin for me in, in all communication, and I think probably especially in B2B, is this tendency to default to the conventions of that particular product or market or service. And I, I just came off and doing some consulting with a tech product. And it's they've done exactly the same thing. It's all about spec. It's all about numbers. It's all about graphics. It's all about... and. I've just said, look, if this is what you're going to do, don't expect anyone to remember what you're saying or what you're doing. So I think that's to me another element that is very, very easy to fall into. And you have to be very, very aware before you, you start that process that you're not going to just say what everyone else is saying. We already, we've talked about Led Zeppelin, we've talked about Umbrella Academy, we've talked about a whole yeah. lot of stuff here. We've given this kind of disregard for, for conventions and sort of traditional sources. Do you think anyone can be creative? I mean, it's, it seems like it's one of those skills that when you say, let's compare it to, the, to your car index. If I, if I say, imagine a creative person, you've yeah. instantly got, you've got a mindset, haven't you? You've got, you've got a figure in mind of what they, of who they are, what they look like, maybe what, what they like doing at school or what their interests are. How do we break out of that and get, yeah. get everyone involved in storytelling to make it as good as it can be? Yeah, first of all, by the way, you did mention Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. My middle son is a huge Zeppelin fan. So uh, just, just on behalf of, of Zach, uh, Cashmere, I still think is their best track. Oh, um, good choice, good choice. Rather than Stay Away to Heaven or Whole Lot of Love or Immigrant Song. Um, Yes, I, I, as you can tell, I do like throwing in all sorts of stuff from art and science as well. And that's part of my, that is part of my thing in, in particular the second book and the new book in citations. I'm a great believer that we need to be more eclectic. Insight and creativity are all about making new connections. Just talking about insight, um, my definition, information is to be collected, but insight is to be connected. So if we want people to be creative, if we want them to become storytellers, first of all, they have to not spend all of their time just with their one company or product or service. And this goes back to my previous pre-Led Zeppelin comment about becoming obsessed with market conventions. I always say, again, as a planner, you have one foot in your client's world, but you have one foot outside. And that one foot outside is really important for creativity. Secondly, um, I would also say that creativity is all about a mindset. 
Um, there are people who are called creatives, and I've never really particularly liked that because it implies everyone else isn't. But creativity is really about seeing something new and being original. And as you said a couple of moments ago, there's a big argument in culture and literature that there's nothing new, that all you're doing is replaying the same stories that Virgil and Homer talked about, or the big seven stories um, that, that storytellers, uh, storytelling theorists, or the same musical chords. But actually, if you look back at, you know, Virgil and Homer, and you look at, I don't know, a, a TV series like Dr. Foster, which was actually loosely based on the Greek tragedy Medea, it's amazing how many variations you can come up without being completely original. And if you again, uh, one of the stories in one of my books is uh, Charlie Kaufman. I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman film fan. Um, again, if any one of your listeners have watched I'm Thinking of Ending Things on Netflix, I recommend you do. You have to watch it twice, though. And he did being John Malkovich adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And he was interviewed about this and he said, when I was trying to write a film, he said, I had this idea, which is of two co-workers who have an affair. And I had another idea about having a portal into someone's head. But both of those ideas were going nowhere until I put them together. And that became being John Malkovich. Uh, Mel Brooks said the same thing about producers. He had the idea about some producers who were scamming money off of old ladies who were gullible. And he had another idea about what happens if you actually try to make a, a, a play that was so bad it lost money, but the backers still kept that money. Put them together, came up with the producers. So creativity is often about having a mindset which is looking out for new ideas and new connections. And I talk about one, one particular little trick that I have. There's a, a science writer who's sadly passed away now called Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote lots of science essays uh, in the States. And they're always worth reading because he's a brilliant writer as well as a scientist. And he talks about how we come up with new ideas and insights and stuff. And he, an expression he uses is previously unapplied detail. He says, if you want to try and come up with something, think about previously unapplied detail. So I, I work with companies and I say, okay, why don't you on your laptop individually, but also as a company, have an intranet? which is called the PUD file or the PUD intranet. And what you do is anytime you're just thinking about something or you pick up something or you think, oh, that's, that's interesting, put that into your PUD file. And then when you're searching for an idea, you need to be creative. You need to come up with a title for a presentation or an idea or whatever it might be. Go through your folder and your unconscious will pick up something. And at some point later, make a connection and go, oh, that's, oh, do you know what, I haven't. So I, I believe that sort of low level creativity is something that we can all do, all of us, just with a little bit of nudging. And certainly I think it's something that we're encouraged to do when we're children, but then we're discouraged as we get older and older. And I think that's really sad and upsetting. So I've now gone into a bit of an educational rant about that. <laughs> that's, that's okay. That's the whole point of a story, isn't it? It takes you in places you didn't necessarily expect yeah, to go like to to them, because like it's, it's got the it. No, I think that's um, I think that's probably a good, a pretty good place to to wrap things up. The idea that anyone can anyone can be creative and and definitely mm. should be because you know for for us you know the developing the development team will have very different experience of the customers and the product than the support yeah. team and sales will than marketing. So can we all throw it together? I just want to throw in there previously unapplied detail. If you call it a pudding yes. file, you're halfway there. Yeah, I call it the pud file rather than pudding, but yeah, yeah. Right, I think that's a really good place to leave things, that anyone can be creative and they, they definitely should be, that it's all about little ideas you can put down there. There's some yeah. useful tips about how you create that. So, um, right, everyone, go out go out and tell more stories. And Taz, once again, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Pleasure, it's been great. 
thank you for joining us for another episode of that marketing podcast you clearly have wonderful taste we hope you found the content useful and and enjoyed it we'd love you to subscribe wherever it is you're listening to us maybe leave us a review if you can think of a topic that you you'd like us to cover or even if you fancy coming on the podcast and sharing your own experience on a particular topic that you can reach us at marketing team at spotler.co.uk thanks once again and happy marketing mm-hmm.